0: In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, Tonight we hear from 2 Samuel, and it's always nice to know that cedar paneling never goes out of style. Um, It's it's been around for a while, Um, but uh, here we have uh, David, uh, a man after God's own heart, who uh, has just... The best way to put it is he's on a real spiritual high. Um, He is experiencing uh, a personal revival in his own life. What has happened is the Philistines had carried away the ark, and uh, David had established, just established, Jerusalem. This was going to be the city of David. And the kingdom of Tyre, the king specifically, had sent Cedar to the city of David, which we know as Jerusalem, to build a house for David. And that's where David set up shop there in Jerusalem, establishing his new kingdom. And on top of that, uh, they win a victory over the Philistines using just a small amount of men. And they carry the ark, which is a whole other story in in and of itself, uh, back to Jerusalem. And uh, there, David is thinking, life is good. Uh, Life is really great. Uh, In fellowship with the Lord, Uh, things are going well, but not really all that well. Because when they bring the ark into Jerusalem, David sees it. And he goes running out to meet it. And he dances before the ark of the Lord naked. And his wife sees it. And she is not impressed. In fact, uh, she is mortified at what is going on. But David won't be deterred. Uh, He sees God's hand on his life. And even Nathan the prophet says what? The Lord is with you. Uh, By all external appearances, God is blessing David and his uh, ministry as king of Israel. They're giving them great military victories. Uh, David has established Jerusalem. It's it's a time of joy. The ark has come back, and there David is, sitting in this wonderful new home, and he says, I've got it. I have my next uh, checklist thing to do. Uh, here I am, dwelling in a beautiful home of cedar. Uh, I will build some place to house the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark, you'll remember, has the Ten Commandments in it uh, and uh, a couple other things, uh, and it has been brought back, and it is where the presence of God is. Right? That's the center of, of the religious life of Israel. And up until this point, it had been in a tent, a tabernacle, which traveled with Israel. Throughout the desert, but remember, this is not shortly after the Exodus. Uh, before David, they were kings. Uh, uh, we had Saul, and another between. He, uh, there was a, an interim, and then uh, even uh, before them, uh, they had judges. Right. So this is uh, for quite a long time. Uh, the Ark was in a tent. It dwelt in the tabernacle, and it wasn't as if uh, God was cold, or or God was looking for some wall to wall. Or, uh, or whatever, cedar paneling. Uh, it was just, David thought, this is a wonderful way to honor the Lord, to build a beautiful structure to house the Ark of the Covenant. But God says, no. God says, that's not what I want. Now, it's not a bad idea. If God has worked mightily in your life, uh, the natural response is to want to give back to God, uh, to do something wonderful for God. Uh, You probably at some point in your life, if God has blessed you in some way, you've been moved uh, to bless other people. And in and of itself, it's not a bad thing. And so God is not chastising David for wanting to build a house for the ark. In and of itself, That's fine. But there's actually something deeper going on. And this must have really perplexed Nathan and David because, again, outwardly, this seems like a really great idea. Right? David brings it up with Nathan, and Nathan says what? Let's do it. This is great news. You know, finally, I don't have to worry about the tent. We can can have a nice established place, and it will establish things even more because we have this new city. It's going to be great. And now we'll have a center for worship. Uh, and no longer a tent, Uh, and in fact, it will reflect uh, all the other kingdoms around us who have religious centers, uh, and not sort of this mobile worship unit that goes all over wherever we are led to go. And yet God says, no, I don't want you to build it. Now eventually it would be built. Solomon, David's son, the son of Bathsheba and David, would build a glorious and wonderful temple, But we know that as what? Solomon's temple. Because it kind of reflected more of the glory of Solomon than it did the glory of the Lord. Uh, But what we see here is that what God is ultimately interested in, the point that he's trying to make with David and the people of Israel, is that what's important is a relationship with God. That's the most important thing. The relationship that the people of Israel have with God is much more important than any building or any offering that they might make to God. But in fact, that He would be their Lord and that they would be His people. And God is God whether He dwells in splendor outwardly or not. Because we know that God is already clothed in splendor, His own righteousness and His own holiness. He also says no because He knows us only too well. He knows... Our human nature. Now, even those good things we do, which in and of themselves are good, right? Building a house for the Lord would be a good thing, but there's still going to be an element of sin mixed in with it. Solomon's temple, not God's temple. Uh, Not too long ago, I had done something around the house that I thought was really, really great. And uh, I couldn't wait for Lauren to come home and see it, and she was home for over an hour, uh, and I was sort of itching, you know, well, when are you going to notice uh, what I've done that has been so wonderful?" And finally I said, "Hey, did you notice the uh did you notice the uh, the kitchen?" And she goes, "Yeah, it looks good." And then she turned to me and says, "And there's your reward, right <laughs> right uh, You know, even though it was a good thing and it was a wonderful thing and it it brought honor uh, to my wife uh, to some extent, my spouse, um, there was still that element of I want a little bit of credit. I want a little, even if it's just a little bit, I still want a little bit of credit. But also our nature is to think that we have a symbiotic or at least a tandem relationship with God when it comes to salvation. The idea that uh, I do the best that I can and that God... Picks up where I leave off. Right? God, you should have a house, so I'm going to build it for you because uh, you you ought to have this wonderful house. And again, I don't want you to be cold. I want you to have all the things that... And, and God sort of says, now wait a minute. Wait a minute. Do you, I, I've dwelt this long in a tent. Do you not think that if I wanted a house that I would have said something? For hundreds of years I've done this and, and I've said nothing. And yet you come along and you think that you're the answer to my prayers. That David is the answer to what God has been longing for so long, which is a temple in which the ark will reside. Well, a lot of people approach their relationship with God in that way, that they think, well, I do the best that I can, and that Jesus picks up where I leave off. Several years ago, I ran across this poem. At first, I saw God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of the things that I did wrong so as to know whether I merited heaven or hell when I die. He was sort of out there like a president. I recognized his picture when I saw it, but I really didn't know him. But later on when I met Christ, it seemed as though life were rather like a bike ride, but it was a tandem bike, and I noticed that Christ was in the back helping me pedal. If you have that poem at home, throw it out. If the Christian life is like a bicycle, what it's like is a unicycle where God is on the unicycle holding your battered and bruised body and pedaling alone. It's not as if we're on the front or or we're on the back or, you know, that we're sort of pedaling and and, in tandem. In fact, um, if you've ever, uh, this is for you folks who are married out there, have you ever done a tandem bicycle or a tandem kayak? It's wonderful marriage counseling. Um, you're constantly working at cross-purposes uh, with one another, uh, and it, what it does is it exacerbates, and it actually shows you uh, how futile it really is uh, trying to go tandem. And with God, uh, it's not as if we're there pedaling together, and if God sees that you're slacking off in the back and not pedaling, that he says, hey, you need to pick up the pace a little bit, but in fact, it's God carrying you the whole way. That's the nature of the Christian life. Is that it's not working together, but in fact, it's God carrying you. And if anything is to happen, God actually works through you. That is the Christian life. Uh, And often it is said that we are Jesus' hands and feet here on the earth. And that's true enough that God does work through us time and time again. And we ought to be humbled that God uses us to accomplish His will in so many ways here on earth. But it's not as if God is up in heaven and when we decide, you know what, I'm not going to go do that thing that I feel called to do today, God thinks, oh no, what do we do now? Right? Well, if Andrew's not on board, we're sunk. Right? Uh, That's not what God is thinking, but God, uh, in His infinite and gracious love for us and by the power of the Holy Spirit, actually works through us to accomplish that which is His will. But that which he does through us is often the hidden work of God, right? Jesus says that when you do good works, the left hand ought not to know what the right hand is doing. Otherwise, otherwise, it's like me cleaning up the kitchen with Lauren, right? There's still a little bit of ownership, and really, even though I want to say, you know, uh, it's because of being a faithful and dutiful husband and honoring my wife and honoring the Lord and what I'm doing. And outwardly, that may in fact be the case, but there's still a part of me that really wants, wants a little bit of praise, wants a little bit of glory. And even as wonderful as building a house for the Lord might have been for David, there was still going to be a part of David. And you know anything about David, uh, I think that this, this would be true, uh, that he would say, uh, look at what I have done for the Lord. And well, what the Lord wants us to testify to is look what the Lord has done for me. Look what the Lord has done and it is marvelous in our sight that in fact God's love is one way that it's about rescue. It's not about us occupying our time like the bumper sticker that says Jesus is coming back. Look busy. right? It is about actually receiving God's mercy and grace toward us and it is about our rescue and not just about what can be done uh, for him. You know, several years ago, I was in a worship service, and the song that we were singing uh, said, you know, Jesus, well, let me, I can quote it exactly. Lord, you've done so much for me. It's not just about what you've done, but it's also about what I can do for you. And at that point, I thought, this is the end of my life. (laughs) I might actually die. Uh, And when I saw it, you know, what it did is it encouraged me to be a little self-righteous. It encouraged me to think, you know what, if I don't feel that my relationship with the Lord is going very well, then I just got to start doing something. I got to start doing all those good things. In some sense, it was almost like I'd become a Christian Hindu. Right? I had a karma list set up and I had this ba- I've got a bad list. That's not the hard thing to keep. Uh, but as long as I did enough good things to outweigh the bad, I would be okay. Uh, when in fact... Uh, the cross, as Martin Luther said, uh, not only attacks the bad parts of us, the sin, what we consider sinful, but the cross also attacks that which we think is good. Anything, good or bad, uh, anything that we think that will help establish our relationship in Jesus Christ that will maintain it and that that will give us some sort of security, uh, is bound to fail, is bound to be destructive is bound to allow us to hang our hats on something that is fleeting and is of little value uh, in the long run. And so, God says no to David for those reasons. He says no. But God doesn't stop with just no. He ends with a promise. He doesn't say no and then walks away. You know, I saw a mother with a, one, a mug one time that said, Uh, when it says why on it, and underneath it it says because I'm your mother and told you so. Uh, It's not like that. God doesn't say no and just let that be that. But God actually leaves it with a promise. Uh, God gives hope in the midst of the no and says, this is why I'm saying no. And I'll pick it up in verse uh, 12. When your days, David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your father's, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Well, what is the promise? That one day one would come whose kingdom would be established forever. And his house would be what? Not built of uh, bricks uh, and stone uh, and mortar, and what building materials, it wouldn't be that kind. But in fact, it would be the church. That he would establish that, that God himself, his Holy Spirit, would dwell in you and me. That we are the legacy that is left by the power of the Holy Spirit. That God himself would come and dwell among us. His kingdom would be established forever and he would make his home in us. That is the promise And that God would get all of the glory for that. And as St. Paul says in Corinthians, that we are but jars of clay who have this treasure that is hidden within us. You know what? More often than not, I feel like a cracked pot. I can identify with what St. Paul is saying. And yet, that's whom God chooses to dwell in. uh, You and me, his sons and daughters, heirs of his eternal kingdom, which will have no end. And so even though our propensity is to set up uh, temples and to establish trophies and and achievements and to build merit, uh, God says, that's not what I'm interested in. In fact, what I have for you is a promise that my grace is sufficient for you, and in you I will dwell, and my love will never fail. And even in those times when you feel like a cracked pot, when you know deep down inside and... Sometimes you don't have to dig all that deep that you are, in fact, a jar of clay. I will remind you of this precious treasure, the gospel that has changed your life and will continue to change the world for His glory and for our good. And so tonight we're going to sing uh, in the offertory uh, a wonderful hymn that I think uh, says it all. Uh, You know, oftentimes when I come to a worship service, um, I like to sing songs that are true about where I am in life. Uh, And God often meets me there. And an old hymn that has come up lately in my life is the hymn, Jesus Paid It All. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small, child of weakness, watch and pray, find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, uh, our hearts do cry out to serve you and you use us, uh, broken vessels to serve you here in this world, uh, to further your kingdom. But Lord, uh, you ultimately desire a broken and contrite heart. What you desire above all is a relationship with us. And so Lord, we pray that that would be established in our hearts. And Lord, that we would rest in the knowledge that all is well because of what you have done for us uh, through the cross. And Lord, that you would speak clearly to us and keep our minds set in the right direction, and that we might rest in your promises uh, that there is one who has come and established your kingdom forever. In Jesus' name, amen.